This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Those um, who uh, have a ruthless want to raise uh, money by criminal gains are using children and young people as the commodity of choice. They think they're easy, they think they're available, they think they're cheap um, and probably less likely to get caught than adults. And it's as if we've vacated some of our communities and allowed those exploiters to move in. And welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North and about the North. Later on in today's podcast, we'll be hearing a stark warning about how primary school aged children running drugs for gangs has become the norm in some of our northern towns and cities while young teenagers are heading up county lines operations. Anne Longfield, the former children's commissioner who grew up in Yorkshire, is telling us why the government should treat the exploitation of children as seriously as it does terrorism. But before we get into that, shall we pick over some of the big politics stories that matter to us in the North? And we got Graham Whitfield, editor of the journal newspaper in Newcastle and North East editor of Business Live to do it with. Graham, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Rob. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Thank you for thank you for coming on. So, I thought maybe we could start by talking about one of the biggest stories in your patch this week, which is the uncertain future facing the plans for this massive gigafactory for electric vehicle batteries in Northumberland. I saw yeah. a good headline in the Guardian this week asking, "How did British Vault go from charged startup to life support patient?" You've been following this story from the start. Can you just explain the importance of this this gigafactory and where things currently stand? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely crucial. It, the government, as part of its net zero targets, has, has, has said that, you know, in, in a few years' time, we won't be able to produce petrol cars. It will have to produce electric cars. Now, the only way you can do that is to produce batteries to power them. The common consensus seems to be that you need six or seven of these in the UK Otherwise, you haven't got an automotive industry. And to put that in context, automotive industry uh, is something like 4% of GDP and, and employs hundreds of thousands of people. It's clearly crucial up here with Nissan, but also dozens of companies in its supply chain. The, the site in Northumberland is, by all accounts, the best site for a gigafactory in the country. It's got renewable energy on tap. It's got it's right next to the port of Blyde, so it's got good, good links out there. It's got good road, road and rail links. 
and there's available labour in the area. So it's, it, it's absolutely crucial that this thing becomes a gigafactory. The, currently, the country currently only has one gigafactory that's next to the Nissan factory at Sunderland, which is to be expanded. So it, it's crucial that this thing happens. When it was first announced, which is going back two or three years, it was billed as the biggest investment in the Northeast since Nissan. Uh, and there was talk of 3,000 direct jobs, 5,000 in the supply chain. And that's great, obviously. But the, the, the thing that always was top of my mind was, you know, when Nissan first came to the Northeast in the 1980s, it was 100 years old. It, it was a multi-million pound company and it could pull off the sort of investment you needed to do. Now, when it was first announced up here, British Vault was less than a year old. It's a startup. You know, there are, there are companies on most high streets older than British Vault. So to get what they need, which is 3.8 billion pounds, and to pull off building this thing, finding people to work in it, getting the product, finding customers, is a huge, huge ask. Now, I, I, my guess is that to do that in a good economy is, is going to be challenging. To do it in an economy that's gone all over the place has proved too much for them, and it certainly is at the minute. So the latest story was earlier in the week, they were looking, there was reports that they were looking at uh, administration, and they've certainly been you know, in trouble for a while. They've got short-term funding, which keeps them going for weeks. Uh, and the conversations we've had them with, with them this morning, they're certainly more hopeful that some of their investors have got past the sort of wobbles that were around the mini-budget and, and could be coming back to them. But it, it's um, it's a worrying time, whether you look at it either as a net zero project or an employment project, both of which are really important. It's a worrying time as to whether it'll, it will come to fruition. I think it was back in January, wasn't it, that Boris Johnson described this factory is a massive opportunity for levelling up and it's not hard to see why obviously that this the particular bit of Northumberland where it's going to be is is prime sort of levelling up territory isn't it it'd be a great place to have thousands of new high skilled jobs so it's going to be a pretty devastating blow to levelling up if that still exists, if this factory doesn't in fact happen, it is. I mean, it's it's a former. It's the it, the site itself is the former coal yards of the old Blythe power station, and this is an old industrial area in a in a place of you know some some deprivation. Um, so yeah, it's it's absolutely leveling up in action, and the government, uh, I'm going to say, sort of around February March time, quasi quarting before his his uh, cameo role as, as chancellor when he was when he was business secretary, he came up to essentially announced government support for the scheme. It never gave an exact amount, but you know, widely thought to be around 100 million. Um, and that was the, the thing that unlocked uh, major investment from the private sector around 1.7, 1.8 billion, if I remember rightly. The problem is none of that 100 billion is is yet in their, in their bank account. And the government is reluctant to release that money until uh, they know it's not, you know, it's not just going to fall into a black hole. But that gets into the problem that, that, you know, British Vault is running out of money. And without that sort of government support to to de-risk the project, the worries are, you know, the whole thing will fall apart. I thought, talking about Boris Johnson again, I was looking back through uh, what we reported over the summer. And it was, I think it was a Prime Minister's Questions, perhaps his last Prime Minister's Questions before he announced he was leaving as PM, that he said basically a uh, sort of in-principle offer of support a letter to that effect had been sent. This was in early, early July, and at that point, everyone was like, "Great, this is this is going this is going to happen." But Kemi Badenoch, the Trade Secretary, was up in the northeast at a trade exhibition uh, expo type event this week, and reading her quotes, the situation 
sounded a lot less, the government seemed a lot less keen to invest its money now than it was perhaps at that point. And she was talking about how they have to, you know, safeguard the taxpayers' interests and that this this particular project didn't seem to meet the criteria for spending hundred million pounds. I mean that that's that's pretty that's that's not a good sign, is it? It's it's not. And we were not laughing, but um, you know, the timing couldn't have been worse for the government on the eve of a green investment summit in the northeast. The biggest green investment project in the country for decades looked like it was about to fall apart. But you're right. The the quote from Bayes uh, the, the government's business department that day was talking about the need to have uh, you know value for money for the taxpayer and that was repeated by Kemi Badnock the next day which you know doesn't sound like they're standing there with their pen over the checkbook it's it sounds like they're saying we don't want to lose all this money you fear a bit for the future of the project and I can't see into the future and to go back to that that original concern I've always had you know how does a how does a three-year-old company with no product and no customers, how does they pull? How do they pull this off? We are we are living in a different time. You know, those old rules of business that probably pertained 10, 20 years ago. Maybe they don't pertain anymore. You know, if you look at the biggest companies of the world, none of them existed at the turn of the century, or, or very you know barely did. You know, so maybe British Vault can come out of nowhere and pull this off. It feels unlikely, um, but I, and I hope I'm wrong on that. It's funny having been around the company uh, for a few years, and there's some great people there, but they don't do things in orthodox ways, and, and, it, and it doesn't feel like you know the, the big businesses that I'm used to dealing with. You know, it doesn't feel like Nissan or Sage or Greggs or those those big companies around the northeast who've got that corporate culture. They feel like they're doing things in an unorthodox way, and maybe that's the way you do things in in the current age. But it, it feels like also mm, this doesn't sort of all sit. Just sort of fall into place the way you'd expect it to for a company that wants to be leading a three point eight billion pound project. Yeah, and I guess I mean the, the the situation that British Vault is in is, I suppose, a sign of the fairly dire economic sort of uh, outlook for the coming coming months. And another example of it we found out in the last couple of days. It relates to a Northern Powerhouse Rail, which listeners and readers of the newsletter will uh, remember Liz Truss during the uh, Tory leadership campaign promised to deliver in full. So that would include a a high-speed stop in Bradford and a full high-speed line between Leeds and Manchester. It would go all the way to to Hull. When she was pressed on it at later points, she was a, a bit vague about it and it was a bit hard to know what exactly she meant. But we now Obviously, Liz Truss is now gone and Rishi Sunak is in and he has let it be known. It's been reported in the I newspaper today that he is going to shelve that promise. So basically, he is reverting to the sort of high speed rail vision that Boris Johnson outlined uh, in November last year, which obviously was quite disappointing to a lot of people and missed out Bradford and was generally considered to be breaking the promises that Boris Johnson had made. And it seems like a large part of the reason for this this sort of uh, watering down of Northern Powerhouse Rail is that Rishi Sunak, who is a man who is known to be keen to keep a tight hold of the purse strings, uh, is, is trying to find a way to plug a big hole in the public finances. And you just wonder how many of these other sort of promises that we've heard about in, in the last couple of years about levelling up are going to start gradually being watered down or, or reversed because of the terrible situation that the country is in. This is exactly right. And, you know, promises from Liz Truss during either her premiership or the leadership 
campaign are now just um, museum pieces they're of no worth whatsoever and even and i guess there was the piece from did the prime minister's spokesman essentially say yesterday anything anything rishi sunak said during the leadership campaign is under review don't don't count on any of that because the economy's gone south and for years and years um the conservatives had the cover of austerity to say we you know we we can't invest in these great projects because um, we were left with a dire economic situation by by after the financial crash and, and blaming that on the on the Labour government of that time. And I guess we're back in that. It feels to me like we're back in that territory again. That any big schemes that Northern leaders have been you know pinning their hopes on have got to be a bit doubtful now because as as, as that famous note from a cabinet minister said in, in the outgoing Labour government, there's no money or whatever it was. The money's run out. You would expect Northern Powerhouse Rail is is not going to get delivered in full in the way that. Um, Northern leaders want that. You know, in the northeast, the bit of northern rail that is really important to hear is the reopening of the Leamside line. It's an old sort of decommissioned line through County Durham, Sunderland, and Gate said, which is really, really crucial as it as, as it provides basically a second route up to the northeast, so that when the East Coast main line gets blocked or, or or there's trouble on that line, you can open that up or you can put freight trains on it so trains don't have to go slower. So it's really, really crucial, but it costs, I think most estimates will put it around a billion. Northern leaders are, are really keen, cross-party, uh, I have to say, as well as business support for that. You fear that big infrastructure projects that are really crucial for growth, for the for, for levelling up, uh, I, the, you, you can't see them finding favour in terms of the mood music that's coming out from Richard Sunak and, and Jeremy Hunt. Yeah, it's no. I think I think you're right. It's hard to be optimistic about that. I mean, Rishi Sunak made some interesting promises to the North during his leadership campaign. Uh, Jake Berry the Lancashire MP persuaded him to sign a pledge saying that he would create a minister for the North, we know that he's now not going to do that, to uh, commit to a levelling up formula to equalise spending and also uh, create two new educational establishments in the North devoted to vocational education known as Voxbridge. Uh, and I, we can only assume that none of that stuff is going to be is going to be happening now, and it. Uh, we, we, um, you and I on on Twitter, we we traded a couple of uh, quite niche or uh, <laughs> da- dated cultural references, didn't we? When we were describing uh, the fact that Liz Truss's promises are basically we can that they're, they're stricken from the record. We, uh, I, I, I think I likened it to the bit in Dallas where Bobby Ewing is having a shower and you realise that the whole thing's been a, been a dream and he didn't he didn't die after all, uh, which I must admit, I haven't actually seen Dallas, but it's just one of those famous cultural references yes. that everyone everyone knows. But you won up to me with a, a, a Neighbours reference. There was an episode of Neighbours, and again, it feels like a fever dream, but it did happen where, I don't think it was an entire episode, but it was a good chunk of it, was, uh, was a dream of uh, Bouncer the dog, and, and and bouncer sort of uh, falls in love with another dog, and and there's a marriage, and, and you know just one of those odd bits of telly that you think that can't be true. But yes, I, the the Liz Truss premiership in my mind is is the um, is is the political equivalent of the, of bouncer's dream. Yeah, most of my cultural references are either Bruce Springsteen or Neighbours. So I went Neighbours this time. So um, that's the only two cultural references I have. But either way, it was, certainly was an odd an odd. Uh, 44 did we agree of 44 or 45 days it was certainly not a, not a long period no it? it wasn't it wasn't at all it wasn't the thing at that all. strikes me uh rob about uh both british fault and northern powerhouse rail is that these are both big you know chunky bits of money you know you're talking billions of, of pounds 
and and you can see why at a time when the government's running out of money, these things end up getting getting shelved. But both of them, what what they both share as well is that these things are crucial for the future of the economy, but also for that net zero. And if you don't have good public transport, if you don't have the ability to produce batteries, you're not going to hit net zero targets. And you know, Rishi Sunak has clearly against his will and probably because of the actions of his predecessor, but one, uh, Boris Johnson, you know, he's going to the COP27 summit, but you can't do that and then not take net zero seriously. And if you want to have net zero, you need to decarbonize. You need to have really good trains, really good buses, and you need to have electric cars. And unless we do these things, we won't have any of them anywhere near the targets that the government have set, which are really ambitious, strong targets, but they ain't going to happen unless we start spending big, big chunks of money on them. Yeah, it's uh, there might be some short-term gain to be had now from saving this money, but in the long term, both from a net zero and a levelling up point of view, it's going to be uh, very, very damaging. Um, Graham, well, I, I want to ask you about one other story which I've been looking at this week for the Northern Agenda. It's a, a report out by the Sutton Trust called the Speaking Up Report about people's experiences who have different accents, regional accents, and how that it's affected them in the early part of their life. And uh, I mean, the upshot is, perhaps not surprisingly, that people with Northern or Midlands accents, their experience has been worse and they feel like they're more likely to be prejudiced against. There's a, uh, a great quote from a guy called Ben Jones from Stockport, who uh, is now a senior leader at a school in Bolton, but he went to university and he told the report, the minute you open your mouth, you have a disadvantage. Someone I had just met asked me whether my hometown was one of those desolate wastelands where the factories used to be. All this ultimately led me to modify the way I spoke at university to fit in. Now, obviously, I realise it's not so easy for me to talk about this because uh, I, I grew up in the in the Midlands and don't have much of an accent of any kind, really. But uh, you, you, I mean, does that does what Ben Jones describes there? Does, does that does that fit in with your your experience? Do you think that's still an issue even even now in 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 twenty twenty two? I have a, a bit of an accent, not a strong Geordie accent by any means, but um, perhaps I've been looking. My my career has been in different parts of the north, um, and it's never been. An issue, and and you know, it's funny. Uh, one of the stories we've periodically done over the last five six years is call centres, and you know, in contact centres moving to the northeast because one of the assets of this part of the world is people associate a Geordie or a northeast accent with friendliness. So you know, it, it, in some ways, the opposite is true. But what I don't know, and what this report seems to point to, is that thing of it, when you go to London or the southeast, that you know, a Geordie accent or a Manchester accent or a Liverpool accent or a Brummie accent. Is things that that, end, that you end up getting mocked for. It's it's it seems odd, um, and like I say, I've never encountered it personally. But um, certainly, that you know, the, the research seems persuasive, and and, and it, it's it's just amazing that it, that it, that still is a case that um, that people feel the need to you know roll back on their accents a little bit um, just just to fit in and, and and get ahead. I would hope it's I would hope it's not the case, but um, the views of that uh, the. the testimony from that teacher suggests that maybe we've still got a long way to go in, in some areas yeah i think you could be you could be right there well graham whitfield uh thank you for going over some of the big news stories from the north and let's hear from our guest today
Thousands of young people in England are being groomed, harmed and even killed because the systems that are supposed to keep them safe are not fit for purpose. That is the damning verdict of a new report by the Commission on Young Lives, hidden in plain sight, which warns that social care, education, family support and children's mental health systems are failing thousands of vulnerable teenagers, costing taxpayers billions, diminishing life chances and putting some teenagers at risk of grooming, exploitation and serious violence. What is the Commission on Young Lives? It launched last year to transform the outcomes of the most marginalised teenagers and it's a major year-long commission chaired by Anne Longfield, the former Children's Commissioner for England who grew up in West Yorkshire and I know is well-versed in political issues affecting the North. So Anne, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good to join you. It's nice nice to have you on. So the findings of the report are pretty shocking, I think. I mean, how did how did we get to this point? Well, I think what we've seen over the last decade is that I think as a country, we've taken the eye off uh, eye off the ball of what's happening to young people. Um, more and more of their services have been cut. We've had a, a decade where youth clubs, youth centres um, have gone and schools have closed earlier. Um, and we've had we know the pandemic had a huge effect on young people. We've now got the cost of living crisis, which, again, has been exploited by those criminal gangs that want to get to young people. And at the same time as all of those things have happened, those um, who uh, have a ruthless want to raise uh, money by criminal gains are using children and young people as the commodity of choice. They think they're easy, they think they're available, they think they're cheap um, and probably less likely to get caught than adults. And it's as if we've vacated some of our communities and allowed those exploiters to move in. And what I want us to do and what government to do is to recognise the scale of that, the magnitude of what's happening, and begin the fight back seriously, nationally and also in local areas. Now, we'll come to some of your uh, sort of recommendations for how we can tackle this problem uh, shortly. But I was interested in the report, it suggests that Primary school age children running drugs for gangs has become the norm in some areas and young teenagers are heading up county lines operations. And and now you say in your in the report that some parts of the country, uh, the state is completely failing in its duty to protect vulnerable children from county lines, criminal exploitation and serious violence. I mean, is there a geographical element to this? Which parts of the country is this going on in? I mean, is it across the north, particular towns and cities, or is it a sort of nationwide issue? Well, certainly it's grown out of urban areas. Our large cities, London, Birmingham, Merseyside, have been areas where there's been county lines running the longest. Um, But the police forces around the country now say there are county lines operating in every local police force area. And of course, there's a disproportionate uh, number of disadvantaged areas, but also uh, poor children and children, largely black boys involved. But certainly it's not always the case. We've talked to a lot of middle class families um, in leafy suburbs where um, young people have been targeted and lured into uh, gangs and violence. So this is something that reaches far and wide. And a couple of developments over recent years, there's been much more of a a reliance on social media for targeting young people and for um, engaging with them. And that clearly has a 
much greater reach to um, other parts of the country. And the other is that the, you talk there about the, the age of, of, of children involved. We have, I think, seen over the last five years, a move down in the number of, of, of the age of young people involved. What used to be 12 and 13 year olds, I think we're now seeing as nine, 10, 11 year olds. And we've been absolutely shocked to see um, and hear about examples where they're 13 and 14 year olds heading up county lines, leading and organizing that supply of drugs, sometimes 80 miles across the country. So these are really dangerous situations to be to, for, for, for children to be in, as you can imagine. And the amount of times that people have told me that, you know, that child is going to be in prison or dead in three years. And if there's nothing else that should be a wake up call for action, I think that's enough. So you mentioned that children involved in gangs are getting younger and younger. And it, it, this reminded me of an uh, interesting claim that was made in Parliament quite recently by an MP in Lancashire. So Scott Benton, who uh, is the MP for Blackpool, he told the Commons that an 11-year-old boy was the ringleader of a crime spree in that area and was responsible for over 80 different offences, including assaulting a police officer. And he, uh, Scott Benton, the MP, said that efforts of Lancashire police to bring him to justice, this young boy, had been compromised by Blackpool Council's Children's Directorate, who refused to criminalise teenagers. And I just wonder what you made of that. I mean, it sounds from what you're saying that an 11-year-old boy being the ringleader of a gang is eminently plausible. But in terms of how best to deal with that, I mean, is, is, is he right to criticise the local council for not taking criminal action against him? Are there other ways that we other can other stop ways, yeah. young kids like this getting becoming getting involved in gang gang life? Yeah. I mean, the first thing to say, if you've got an 11 year old or a 12 year old involved at a reasonably high level in a gang, then or in any stage in a gang, then things are going very wrong. That's a young person at risk. And the local authority, the government has a responsibility to safeguard those children. You know, They need to intervene to do so. Um, if there are you know, if there are criminal activities going on, of course, you know, there need to be consequences. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to be soft here, but for young children who are being targeted, being groomed uh, and being manipulated themselves as part of a bigger criminal gang, there's clearly uh, that level of um, intimidation going on. So with all of this, what we found actually is that there's a lot of children, young people who are involved where there's lots of professionals around them, sometimes 20, even 30 professionals, but it's not clear who has the responsibility to protect them ultimately, who has the responsibility to spend time with them and prevent this happening. And I think that the sad reality is that there isn't there aren't people there in the statutory services who have the capacity to be able to provide what these kids want, which is trusted adults who can stick with them, give them guidance over months and months to get them out of these gangs and into a better place. But knowing it's happening, what we're proposing is to get ahead of the game to prevent it happening and to ensure that these kids have a good future ahead of them, not the danger that they do at the moment. And one of the ways that you want to do that is what you described as a, a sure start uh, network for teenagers. So how, how would that 
operate in practice? How would it be different to, to what we have at the moment? Well, we want to reclaim local areas for young people. That means having more activities going on. It means to have youth practitioners there who are able to build those relationships with kids. We'd like to see schools staying open after school, during school holidays, uh, and at weekends too. But what we've done is we've drawn on the experience of Sure Start for younger children. We've looked at how that could work for teenagers. So you coordinate services in and around schools. You bring health and education together, and you make sure that these places are trusted places where teenagers and their parents can expect to find people who are on their side and they can rely on. We think it's really plausible to establish a Sure Start Plus hub in and around secondary schools in the most disadvantaged areas. And any kind of investment that takes place now, we've sought to make this as practical and affordable as possible, we believe will save money within a very short period of time. And presumably that is the argument that you would make to ministers when they say, well, we haven't got any money. Uh, we're the, the public finances are in a desperate state. We're cutting back on things left, right and centre. Your argument would be, well, you might save some money now, but it will cost you more in the, in the long yeah. run. Well, there's a, there's a straight investor save argument. At the moment, it's been estimated that the cost of not intervening early is about £17 billion pounds um, a year. The cost of knife crime, youth knife crime alone over the last 11 years has been £11 billion. So we're paying for this. We're paying this through this through our youth custody, through our NHS, through our police, through our schools. We're paying billions, but we're not preventing it happening. But we, we do think there are creative ways where, you know, government can look for funds to cover this. We say, for instance, that we think the social media and telephone companies should have a social levy applied to pay for the £1 billion recovery package that we think is needed for mental health. We think government should look at a new arrangements over proceeds of crime to spend on these short start hubs and on these workers. You know, there are ways that government can do this without just being a constant drain on their central funds. But first of all, there has to be the determination to make this happen. And the will at the highest level is what I think we we, we need to see in place. Well, let's hope uh, government ministers are listening. Anne Longfield, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you, pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.